Amen. Well, I admire your faith, Jen. That was uh, uh, you know, great faith for these wonderful words. We'll, we'll see what comes out. Um, but what a joy to see you this evening. Uh, welcome. If you've not been along before, um, even bigger welcome. My name is Richard. I've been on the team here for nearly 12 years. Um, and actually, when we first had a service in here, um, in, it was an afternoon service, and there were three young people and three interns, um, and that's what we did in the afternoon. So it's, it's just tremendous to think over all the time how God sort of evolved this space and the number of times that people have had life-changing encounters with God here. And that, let me ask you a question before we get in. Uh, what are the life-changing encounters you've had with God uh, down the years? Can you... Can you sort of put a sort of finger on them and think, oh, that really made a difference in my life? Because tonight we're, we're doing a sort of a deep dive into a guy called Abraham. And the reason we're looking at Abraham, or Abraham as he was read out, is to give us a, a bit of a window into the Bible overview. But the Bible is a book that sort of reads us as much as we read it. <laughs> Have you ever found that? You're sort of reading it and suddenly it's like, oh, this is talking at me. It's talking to me. It's, in fact, sometimes it's shouting at me. Um, and it's something that could be so uncomfortable, you just put it down and close it for a week and then hope that the preacher just tells you stories about his own life, doesn't actually get you into the text because the, the text is alive, the text is challenging. And so uh, here we are, we're, we're in Genesis 12, but because we're doing a Bible overview, we have to think, well, what have we just jumped over to get all the way to Genesis 12? We've gone from creation to fall to uh, Genesis 12, the call of Abraham, and there's loads of awesome stuff in the middle. And if you want to know about the awesome stuff in Genesis 1 through 11, we're doing a morning series on that, um, including the, uh, the sons of Nephilim, who, uh, who are sort of, it's almost like the sons of God marry the daughters of, of, uh, of men, and they have children who are the heroes of renown. Like, if you want to know what that is, Simon Downham's preaching on that in a few weeks' time in the morning. So he'll give you a definitive answer. I won't give it to you tonight. Uh, but we're, we're going to look at the guy who is sort of seen to be the father of faith, in the Old Testament, or the father of many nations. That's his two sort of titles, Abraham. And he starts out life, and we've got a little slide to go up, Josh, please. He starts out life, uh, we see in chapter 11, in a place called Ur. Ur, you are, Ur. Uh, and he's a member of a household of terror. Uh, and so there he is, down in Ur, which is right down the bottom there. And it, this is a this is a place that got excavated by archaeologists in the 20s and 30s. And one of the minor archaeologists there was married to Agatha Christie. It's a little bit of historical knowledge for you. And they discovered that it was a place with many sort of two-story villas. Uh, it's kind of middle-class place, I suppose, an affluent place. But the thing that you would really notice is that picture at the bottom there. It's just a ziggurat. Uh, it's 110 feet high, 210 feet wide, 150 feet uh, deep. And it's basically a temple to the moon god, who I think is called Nainor, with a double N in the middle. And what they would do is they would go up there and worship him. And the bit that we didn't read out today is that in verse 31 of chapter 11, it says, Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abraham, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So you can see where Canaan is, and you can see the journey from Ur to Canaan. And actually, they need to go up the Euphrates uh, River. It's not they're going AWOL going up there. They need to go a decent travel route. But when they get to Haran, they settle there. And uh, it's just interesting, isn't it? It's one of those little details uh, that we don't always clock. 
There's another detail we don't clock because it's not here in Genesis at all. You have to go into the book of Acts to find it. And in the book of Acts, a guy called Stephen is telling uh, the story of the Old Testament. And he, he says this in Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 2. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. He's preaching to a bunch of people who are about to kill him, literally. Uh, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and this is really key, while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Look, look at the map a second. So while he was still in Mesopotamia, while he was in Ur, the God of glory appeared to him and said, leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. And so he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. But what's really interesting, if you, look, if you cross that back into Genesis, in a verse, chapter 11, verse 31, it's Terah who takes his son Abraham out of Ur. So what was going on? They probably all were moon worshippers. They were enveloped in the dominant culture of their day. You know, just as we're all collectively consumers in a consumerist society here in London, they were enveloped in this sort of moon god worship. And Abraham presumably went back to daddy, Terah, who's lost one of his sons already. One of his sons has died. Um, a guy called Haran, which is interesting because look where they settle. They settle in Haran, and his son who died is called Haran. <laughs> That's an interesting detail. Uh, and he's probably gone to him and gone, uh, Dad, um, something's just happened to me. And Dad's probably had to work out what do we do with this. Now, why did they move from Ur? Well, according to Stephen in Acts, it's because the God of glory has appeared to Abraham. But in Genesis, it's Teratix, his son. And he actually, he only takes one of his three sons with him. One of his sons has died. Haran has died. And the other son um, is married and is settled down and having children and just stays behind. So we've got a really interesting family unit going up. You've got Abraham and Sarai going up uh, with Terah to Haran, uh, and they're taking with him Haran, their dead brother's son, Lot, who it turns out in the book of Genesis is a pain in the neck, and we'll find out more about him as, as it goes through. And they've made their way up there. But Haran is, is a place of relative wealth. It's, uh, it's an all right place to be if you've come from a two-story villa down in Ur. Haran's not a bad place to settle. And uh, Abraham's been told to get to Cana, to the land I'm going to give you. But he's stuck in Haran, and he's going to be stuck there for 15 long years until Terah, his daddy, finally dies. Now, as we just read through that, probably didn't realize there was a 15-year time lag in there, did you? It's interesting. I wonder how many dreams you've got, and they're like, they're just a bit stuck right now. <laughs> or my life's just a bit on hold, or what is going on? Well, all these people in the Bible, they know stuckness. They know what is going on us. They know, <laughs> they know what it's like to be an <laughs> And uh, they make it up to there. And then they get down to Canaan, after the, uh, after the death of Terah, the Lord says to Abraham, go uh, from your father's household to the land I'll show you. And he promises him this, I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you, I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing, I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's an extraordinary promise. And anyway, they set out. And it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, they set out in tents. So look at the economic progress Abraham's making over his life. <laughs> He's moving from a nice two-story villa in Ur, probably, 
up to Haran, where actually it was pretty nice, and they settled there for 15 years quite happily, into a camel skin tent, probably, like a Bedouin. He's like not exactly living the American dream here. He's living in the Canaanite nightmare. And if you, uh, and if you see it, um, verse 6, they settle in the land of Canaan, they arrive there, and there's this throwaway line. It says, at that time, the Canaanites lived there. And that just feels like a bit of a detail. But if you're reading this at the time that it's written, after the conquest of Canaan, you'll know a lot of things about the Canaanites. You'll know that these are, are people who sacrificed children to Molech, their god. They're people who had a horrendous religious system. They're people that the God of the Bible is sort of in patience, waiting until the full wickedness is visited upon them before he brings judgment on them. But his judgment's going to come on them because they're absolutely evil. And Abraham ends up in Canaan, and at that time, the Canaanites lived there. And he gets this extraordinary promise. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And you think, oh, okay, that's nice. When's that going to happen? Remember, his wife, Sarai, is currently childless. Interestingly, she's his half-sister. In these days, at the, sort of the, the early age of uh, Genesis, when uh, humanity's still sort of getting its beat up, they're still living a long time. It's only uh, Terah is living 205 years, but before the flood, people were living to eight or 900 years. It's hard for us to get our heads around, but their sort of genetics was basically far better than ours, I think, in that era. And suddenly, uh, you've got the, this 75-year-old guy with a childless wife being told by God, to your offspring, I'll give this land. And you're like, them and whose army is going to get this land? <laughs> How are you going to conquer this land with these marauding, murdering pagans? How are you going to get this land? And he says, well, sort of, thank you, God. But I wonder what sort of time lag he thought that would take. Any idea? You know, how, how long till I get some offspring, God? I haven't got any offspring yet. 500 years later, they're going to come back in and take the land. To your offspring, I'm going to give this land. And so we find out another thing about the Bible timeline. That when God says something's going to happen, it happens. But it's not necessarily happening tomorrow or on our time. One of the, the things that we've sort of done with religion in, in the West is try and work out how we can make a life worth living now. <laughs> you know, what's the now word from this service for me, God, today? Sometimes the now word is it's not going to be now. <laughs> you're going to have to do the patient endurance. You're going to have to wait. It's not always just there for you. Sometimes there is a huge time lag. But nevertheless, he builds an altar to the Lord who appears to him. He pitches his tent and carries on. And if you look ahead into verse 10, uh, not long after he's settled there in the Negev area, a famine comes on the land. <laughs> so his economic status gets even worse. He ends up being a refugee. I wonder how Abraham feels about this new god he started to worship at this stage. And was he not better off worshipping the moon god in Ur all those 20 years ago? Was the meeting the God of glory a benefit to his well-being and his life? Now he's living in a tent and about to be a refugee in Egypt. How's he feeling about his downward progression through life? When he gets to Egypt, uh, it turns out his wife Sarai, and this is why you think the timelines in the Old Testament 
feels slightly different to today, although, uh, you know, maybe not in Hollywood, because as soon as uh, he gets to Egypt, he's scared that his wife, who is presumably in her 70s as well, is so attractive that they're going to try and kill him to get her to be their wife. <laughs> it feels like, a, you know, a sort of parallel universe. She's a very beautiful woman in her 70s, and he's worried that the king of the, of the era is going to take her to be his wife. And so he, he passes his off as a sister, and then he has some problems with Lot, him and Lot, they go different ways, and you see a bit of Abraham's faith there, and then he has to go and rescue Lot. But then in chapter 15, we, we land on probably the most important verse in Scripture up to this point, apart from in the beginning, God. And what we get here is uh, this extraordinary phrase in verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, why is that important for a Bible overview? It's important because it features massively in the New Testament, and it's what we're all asked to do as well. What, what does he believe God for? He believes that he is going to be his shield and his reward, and he also believes uh, that the air that he's going to get is going to be a natural air, and if you look up at the sky and count the stars, if you can count them, that's how many your offspring will be. So this man who's married to a woman who the Bible says her body was as good as dead in terms of being able to bear children, believes and it's credited to him as righteous. And I trust you, God. And that's what the New Testament picks up and says we need to do as well. When Jesus says, you can be saved by faith in me if we believe him, we too can be saved by faith alone. That's then tested uh, he has uh, a long wait to, to have a son called Isaac. I think it's another nearly 20-year wait there. And uh, he finally has his son, Isaac. And then uh, you'll find out uh, as you read through that that gets put to a test as well in a famous moment on a mountain where him and Isaac both seem to have extraordinary faith that God will provide a sacrifice instead of Isaac being a sacrifice. And uh, that proves to be... So that's sort of Abraham in a very fast run-through. Pivotal character in the Old Testament. The father of faith and someone who is promised that wherever he goes, it's going to be a blessing to people around him. That there's a sort of legacy from him. And when I, when I was a kid in uh, Sunday school, um, we, we did a song where we had to go like this. Um, and it was called Father Abraham. Has anyone, anyone, anyone done that? Yeah, we got James, James knows that one. You got a few? I went something like, Father Abraham and many sons, many sons. And if you know the words, what's the next line? Yeah, I am one of them and so are you. And the Christian message is that the people of God now, us as Christians, are grafted into this incredible tree that arises from Abraham, the father of faith, and we are now children of Abraham. We're children of the promise, children of faith. And what is Abraham's original promise? I'm going to bless everyone through you. I'm going to bless the world through you. From you is going to come a nation. And I'm going to bless the world through you. And we are heirs of that promise to bless people. And that's why Abraham's such a, a key, key person for us. But just look at that map again, just as we finish. This is a short, short one tonight. And just think, you know, maybe you have met the God of glory at some point in your life, like, like we hear Abraham did when he was in Ur. And maybe you're 
circumstances mean you're stuck. You're not at liberty to do everything that you think he wants you to do. Abraham had a father, Terah, who was in charge of their household. He was grieving a brother who had died. He was living through a lot, probably having to bring Lot up, who seemed to be a bit of a pain in the neck, a sort of a, a dependent hanger on And they make it up to Haran. How many of us have set out on a journey of faith and obedience? And probably, if we're honest, we've got halfway along the journey. We haven't made it all the way. Or then if we have made it all the way to Cana, when we get there, we discover, frankly, it was a lot harder than we thought it was. God, I stepped out and I did this for you, but when I got there, they were all monsters. <laughs> There's a, a lovely anecdote about a vicar who was always uh, going to his window at four minutes past four every, every evening, regardless of what was going on, whoever was around for a counselling appointment or a meeting. He always went to the, the window at the back of his house. And eventually one of the church wardens challenged him on it and said, why are, you, why are you always getting up at that? And he said, that's the, that's the time that the Intercity Express comes through on the rail at the back. And I love to see the only thing in the parish that moves without me having to push it. <laughs> and we see how disgruntled it's easy to get. You're like, God, why am I stuck here? Why am I in this annoying situation? Why, why, why? Why am I surrounded by evildoers? Why? And you've promised that I'm going to inherit something, but I'm not living the reality of that now. I haven't even got the children I need to have a descendants who can conquer this land, and the land is evil. And it's easy for us to, to look around even our culture, isn't it, and go, what a mess. You know, I get to, I get to travel with Soma to countries which are majority Christian. And it's quite enlivening to walk into church and discover that there are literally hundreds of people. And it's not because everyone's just come to one church from the surrounding area. It's because all of the churches are full. And it's amazing. Uh, and yet that's not our reality, is it? Our reality is we sort of face a whole load of difficulty here. And sometimes it feels like spiritually we're stuck even going in Egypt. We can't even hold on to our legacy. We're stuck going off as almost like refugees, just, God, I'm struggling to breathe. You know, one of the things I've noticed in, is our sort of style of worship in the West is really different to some of the, the places I go to visit. In some of the places in Africa, the worship's like victorious and military almost, and like we're conquering the world, Jesus sort of thing. And our worship tends towards the therapeutic and towards the, please help me survive, God. <laughs> I need you now. I need you. I need your presence. I need you. Help me. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. And theirs is like, help us go out and conquer the world, Lord. <laughs> and we're just in a different zone, aren't we? It's sort of tough to survive. But Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And then he waited, not perfectly, imperfectly. He waited imperfectly for about 20 years and finally got the child of promise. And then he was challenged. Are you just going to hold on to this like it's my precious? <laughs> or are you going to give it back to me? And between Isaac and Abraham, they gave it back to God. And the legacy of Abraham's life is like the stars in the sky or like the sand on the seashore. We are one of them. I am one of them. So he, it all dates back to Abraham. 
all dates back to him, the father of the great monotheistic faiths, all of them. Extraordinary. Extraordinary because he believed against all odds. So the Bible begins with Genesis 1 through 11, basically culminating, what a mess. And then we get plan two, to invest in one person and see what a little bit of faith can do in terms of changing the world. And friends, a little bit of faith can change the world in schools, in workplaces, in families, in churches, even in the Church of England. <laughs> All sorts of things can be changed where God finds people with even just a little bit of faith. Amen? Amen.